to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, the founding editor of New Money Review. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode of the podcast by Chris Bendixson, who's head of research at CoinShares. Chris, what is Bitcoin mining and why is it important? Bitcoin mining itself is the process by which the network agrees on the time ordering of transactions. Uh, and that is essentially all it is. Um, you know, so it, the Bitcoin network is a group of computers around the world who are working together effectively. Yeah, in a sense that they're working together in a cooperative manner, but um, in a in a adversarial cooperative manner. So they don't actually have to be mutually trusting. All they have to agree upon is a, a common level of rules. And other than that, the way the rules are set up uh, makes it such that they can cooperate even while being mutually distrusted. Okay. So what is Bitcoin mining in practice? What, what, what is it? It's essentially a competition to find um, a number or uh, a set of numbers, which by finding those numbers, you provably show that you've put in a certain amount of work into finding them which to the network proves essentially that you've skin in the game, uh, which allows the network to, if you will, trust that you will not add transactions to the network that don't abide by the rules. And if you do, the rest of the network will reject your transactions anyway, which means that you will lose all the, the money that you spent in the work finding those numbers. So how important is the fact that these computers are expending energy for the survival of the network? The fact that they're expending energy is important because it is the only way uh, known where you can actually achieve fully trustless distributed consensus. So the fact that they're distributed, uh, that they're using energy shows that they have skin in the game. There's no other way... I mean, they're spending money because exactly. they're, they're, they're using electricity and they had to buy the that, machines to do this. Exactly, and that's correct. That's, that's the skin in the game. Yeah, they're expending real-world resources. They've bought computer hardware and they're, uh, they're using electricity. So it is real-world resources that are being put on the line to find these numbers for which you're rewarded in Bitcoin. And that, that's important. So you, you have local expenditures but your reward is in Bitcoin. So you are incentivized, therefore, to act in a way that is beneficial to your reward, lest you risk uh, losing your investment. So what does a Bitcoin mine look like? Have you visited some? Uh, I have not actually visited uh, any in person, but uh, they essentially look like a data center. Uh, it's, it's, you know, imagine like a big warehouse with racks of computers uh, and engineers like scurrying back and forth with like little iPads and little, you know, measuring devices, like troubleshooting uh, the, the, the machines. And they basically just stand in racks uh, with some sort of climate control. So it's a, like, it's a, it's a server farm, basically, but the, the servers are just performing a, one particular mm -hmm. function rather than conducting the world's internet traffic. Correct. Literally only one thing, finding the hash of the SHA-256 algorithm. Okay, so they've been programmed just to do that particular uh, calculation. Not, not only programmed, but the hardware itself is built to do only that. Okay, and where is the, how you know to, to, how can we measure the geographical distribution of mining? Can you see by looking at the Bitcoin network where the mining is taking place, in which parts of the world, in which countries? Not really, because you can you can hide behind various uh, services to mask where your location is, 
Um, the only real way to find the actual geographical distribution of miners is to just look for the physical sign of miners. Miners can, if they want to, on the internet, hide behind uh, whatever means of, uh, of internet hiding that they choose. Right. So there's no way of picking it up simply from you know, looking at the signs that you get from internet traffic, um, you have to actually make an effort to go and find where they are physically located. And that must be impossible, surely. You can't tell where they, where they are. Yeah. Um, Unless you run the electricity network and you see a sign of a, of a drain from the network or... Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, it's, you're right. It's, it's impossible to know exactly the location of all miners, which is, which is a good thing. Uh, it makes my job as a researcher quite difficult, uh, and we have to spend uh, an enormous amount of like man hours scurrying around the internet looking for signs of this, looking at um, message boards, looking at every article that uh, mentions the opening or closure of a Bitcoin mine, uh, for prospective Bitcoin mine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's really time consuming uh, to try and figure out what the actual like of the network is. So I mean, but just to put a, a kind of a, some facts and figures around it, I mean, or, or, or reports of where this is taking place, a lot of people have said they've been to server farms in China where lots of the Bitcoin mining has taken place in the past. Mm -hmm. There's, there, are, there are big uh, mining operations in Siberia, I've heard, mm -hmm. because I was at a conference where someone was advertising yep. the, the possibility of joining one um, in Quebec, uh, in, yep. in various places with cold, I guess, and cheap cheap energy resources, but also mm -hmm. Venezuela, people were, were trying to convert their yeah. savings into Bitcoin to avoid the hyperinflation. So yeah. it's, it's all over the place, right? Yeah, the Venezuelan projects didn't end very well because they actually got confiscated by the government, Yeah, uh, which is sad, but true. Um, and yeah, other than that, you're right. It, you know, Bitcoin miners tend to flock to where electricity is cheap and abundant, uh, which happens to be areas of the world where there's uh, ample hydro. So Siberia, uh, you mentioned in the Irkutsk region, for example, there's a series of hydro dams on, uh, I think it's the NSA River um, in Quebec. Hydro-Quebec is one of the largest producers of uh, hydropower in North America. Uh, you have a lot of uh, activity on the Columbia River Basin in Northwestern uh, Pacific of the United States and, and Canada. Um, and there's activity in Scandinavia and the Caucasus and in Iceland, uh, where, is there, where there's a significant amount of geothermal as well, which is interesting. And other than that, there's scattered activity. I mean, uh, China and Yunnan and Sichuan provinces, there are lots of uh, mining, also large hydro sectors. But you have, uh, you have regions, particularly in China, where there is uh, mining on the back of coal happening. Um, you know, one of the famous places is Ordos, which you know, got a lot of press with yeah. uh, being one of the first huge industrial uh, sites of, you know, proper scale uh, with Bitmain being the, the main proprietor. I'd like to come back to, uh, to the geographical distribution and the ecological impact mm -hmm. and the, the political impact of that, of that distribution a little bit later on. Yeah. But uh, before we do that, let's put some uh, figures on the uh, amount of work being, un being undertaken across the Bitcoin network. So what's sure. the current level of I know it's measured in hashing power, so yeah. one hash is one attempt to, to solve this numerical puzzle, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, so how many hashes are taking place across the network right now in, in Bitcoin? Uh, right now we're at about 40 exahash, 
which I can't actually remember on top of my head what exa is, but it's. A, uh, I looked it up before coming here because it's a very big number. Yes. And most of, most of us struggle with big numbers, but it's a, it's a billion billion. So it's one with uh, eighteen zeros. Tens eighteen. Okay. Wow. So. yeah, that's that's a lot. And um, one hash itself, I think, is fourteen thousand floating point operations within a computer. So it's uh, around fourteen thousand cycles of uh, of doing something, if you will. So it's a very large number of, of calculations taking place. How can we put that number in context? Can we compare it with anything? Well, so supercomputers, for example, are rated on uh, floating point operations. Uh, and you know, if, if you have a supercomputer that is in the petaflop region, that is a, a powerful supercomputer. And the Bitcoin mining network is thousands of times the combined output of the 500 biggest supercomputers on the, the planet. So, so in some ways we're talking about the most powerful and most secure computer network on Earth. You can think of it like that in certain ways, but it really only does one thing though. So, you know, it's powerful in the sense that it's very good at calculating the hash of SHA-256, but you can't really do anything else with it. Okay. So, but let's put it another way. If someone, uh, so Bitcoin and any other proof of work cryptocurrency network mm -hmm. the, you know, where hashing determines the outcome to the algorithm they're all vulnerable to someone coming and taking over the network by performing a majority of the, of the work is that right it depends on how you think about it I mean um, a lot of people think that 51% attacks which I think is what you're referring to yeah. uh, are, are you know these like massively destructive events whereby you I just wanted to go through for how much it would cost someone to take over the network yeah um, well so a lot. So the, the the total current power draw of the network is about four point seven gigawatts. So if if you want to conduct a fifty one percent attack, you essentially need to be running more than half of that. Yeah. Uh, for the amount of time it takes you to actually catch up with the number of blocks you want to catch up with, and you know. I didn't want to go into like the actual math of that in this podcast just because roughly, it, just roughly, I mean, how much would it cost? You know, let's say I'm the uh, state actor, you know, A, I'm a government that, that doesn't like Bitcoin, I want to take it over, how much is it going to cost me to do it? Well, you can't take it over though. Uh, the only thing you can do is you can uh, double spend some transactions and yeah. uh, maybe do like you a You create a false history. Yeah, and uh, the longer back you want to go, the more that cost is, right? So it's it's hard to put like a single number on it. You also have to acquire the hardware. We estimate that the hardware that is in use uh, right now costs more than $4 billion. Um, so you, you'd have to buy up an insane amount of hash power, um, probably on the sly too, which makes it even more difficult because this industry isn't very big. There's only a handful of foundries that are actually uh, making ASICs. It would be, ASICs are the specialized chip that yeah, you, you use for Bitcoin mining. Yeah, uh, exactly. So uh, an ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit. So right. it means that it is a chip that is built for a single purpose, in this case, to... And up until recently, the, the, the world leaders in manufacturing these chips are Chinese companies. Still Chinese. Well, Taiwanese. Well, okay. So the, the designers, uh, you, you have to look at the supply chain uh, as like an industrial supply chain. You have the designers of the chips, the bit mains, the what's miners, the, you know, bit fury, etc. Uh, they design the chip 
in-house, then they send the designs to the foundries. The foundries then make these giant wafers of you know hundreds, sometimes thousands of chips on them based on the design. And then those chips are then cut, put onto boards uh, that can hold several hundred chips um, at a time. Uh, one mining unit can have multiple boards and then sort of like a fan and a power control unit and you know an internet connection. So that um, one thing that's puzzled me in the last year, and I, I struggled to get my head around it, is why we had a, a pretty crippling bear market in cryptocurrency prices from a year ago. Bitcoin's prices is down about 80% mm-hmm. or slightly more from its peak in December 2017. Yeah. Now, I can see that that's happening to the price, but if I look at what's happening in terms of hashing operations across the network, yeah. the, 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 the collective computing power that's been put in into the Bitcoin network by the miners, it's gone up four times. Right. Since, uh, so why, why are miners devoting more and more energy to Bitcoin mining while the, while the rewards for doing so are going down? It's, well, so right now, you probably wouldn't say that they're devo- uh, devoting much more into it. I mean, we had the hash power fall from, I think, almost 60 exahash down to, you know, mid-30s between, like, early November and end of uh, January. But it's still four times higher than it was at the yeah. price peak. Yeah, and so the reason for that is that there's an asymmetry in the timing it takes between... So the um, the hash rate follows the price, essentially, and it's modulated by efficiency gains, but efficiency gains are minor compared to price. So when the price of Bitcoin goes up, mining profitability increases, and you know enterprising miners are then going to look to expand their operations, but because this is an actual real supply line with you know supply restrictions and you know you'd have to have dedicated um, you have to have dedicated time slots at the big foundries. You have to compete you know with the likes of Apple and you know. So there's a lag in in terms of exactly. So passion. between the final investment decision of when a miner decides, okay, we want to add hash power to our operation, and the time that is actually in their centers ready to be switched on can be anywhere between three to six months. So there's a lag on the uh, on the increase of price, but when the price falls, there is no such lag because as soon as miners fall between uh, fall beneath where they are cash flow negative, um, and so let me take a step back here. So when you look at mining profitability, you have you have two essential levels that you need to look at. So the first one is where a miner is all in ROI profitable, which means that they will make back their capital expenditure and they will make a nominal profit on top of that. Those so the capital expenditures on the machines mm-hmm. and then they have to factor in electricity the costs, expenditure, yeah, electricity rent, costs, cooling and all that stuff. Manpower, rent, exactly, yeah. all of those. Just like a regular brick and mortar business, they have okay. a bunch of real world um, operational expenses. And then what they what they make in, in return is, uh, is is their income in bitcoins, which they can work out a kind of probability of, of, of how much they, can, they earn based upon the yeah. machine they have and how right. much power they put in. And if they're mining in a pool, it's pretty well flattened too. So you you get your income based on your um, based on your share of mining power, and it's smoothened out. Whereas if you don't mine in a pool, you know you it's a much more probabilistic thing. And every once in a while, you get a block, and you don't know when. Uh, 
But if you mine in a pool, you get like flat rewards because everyone pulls in, so the, the income is smoother. But so um, when when miners are cash flow positive but not making an actual return on investment, it just means that their capital is getting essentially destroyed and these miners will fall out of the market over time. But they won't shut down their mining gears so long as they're cash flow positive because you will try until the moment you can no longer make any cash on the mining gear to like regain your capex. So what is going on with the hash rate? I, I, you said it went down from uh, a peak in November and it's mm -hmm. gone down to, to, and it's now picked up a bit over the last few weeks. I'm just, what, a little bit. What's going on? So what, what's going on is that miners are actually falling below where their cash flow negative. They're, going, they're becoming cash flow negative. Yeah, and so the moment you become cash flow negative, it doesn't even make sense for you to have your mining gear switched on anymore because the moment you switch it on, you're paying more in electricity and, and you right. know all your operational expenditures than you're getting back in Bitcoin. That's the point where you shut your gear down and you probably try to sell it to regain like a little bit of your money. And I've heard anecdotal evidence that some of the leading uh, miner, mining equipment is the, is the ant miner, is that right? Or one of the leading ones? Which retails at how much for a for a new version? Uh, the 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 S fifteen. I actually don't know what they're charging for it right now. Or um, oh, the S nine, which was state of the art. Yeah. Well, right. So the S nine is is uh, the S nine is probably the most successful mining unit in Bitcoin history. Uh, it it was a remarkable machine when it came out because it was just way ahead of the curve in terms of efficiency, and it, I mean it propelled Bitmain to complete dominance in the hardware space and everybody was using it, right? And that retailed at how much? D depending on the Bitcoin price, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it retailed for, for as much as several thousand dollars and as little as 500, depending yeah. on... The, Bit, Bitmain were very shrewd in essentially treating the, um, the mining gear. You're essentially selling it as like almost like a future or um, you're selling it in terms of the expectations of its income in Bitcoin terms. An option on the future price of Bitcoin. Yeah, in almost sense. in yeah. a sense, right? Yeah. So it, the, the, the retail price of these things uh, has swung like, like crazy. Yeah. I mean, they started off quite cheap. If you got them at the beginning of the technology curve, right before the run-up in the Bitcoin price, you probably made a lot of money in the last run-up. If you bought them mid last year, early last year, or even late 2017, you are probably in trouble right now. Uh, so the S9 only saw incremental upgrades for years. Um, you know, a little bit of efficiency gained here, a little bit of reliability gained there. Uh, and it wasn't until their, um, uh, I, th I think it's called S15, came out recently uh, that you saw real, like, proper step change in uh, the, uh, the efficiency of the, of the Bitmain, like, ASIC miner. So given all those technicalities, what, and, and the, the people have bought at different prices and got different versions of these mining mm -hmm. machines, what I know you've got some tables in your report which are very interesting to, to, to check, mm -hmm. but uh, what percentage Bitcoin price today is about $3,600 uh, yeah. a coin. What percentage of the overall mining network do you think is operating at a loss at the moment? So again there you, you have to look at, uh, you have to look at the, the differences. So you have 
cash flow negativity, and then you have uh, not reaching an ROI break even. So we can pretty safely assume that no one is running at cash flow negativity or they will have shut down their gear. Uh, However, there are probably quite a few. It's impossible to say how many because no one will tell you what they paid for gear or how much electricity they're paying for or any of the sorts. They just won't because it's a business secret. Um, but we have reason to believe it's probably a significant amount of the current market are not making back their capex and will over time, unless they can uh, raise fresh capital, be eliminated from the market. Are there reasons why participants in Bitcoin mining might not be using economics as a rationale for mining? They might be willing to. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when we had the Bitcoin cash fork in November, mm -hmm. there were pe various people who were saying that the two competing parts of that fork mm -hmm. were happy to operate at a, happy to mine at a loss because they were trying to definitely to 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 compete against the other the other chain. Is there, turning to Bitcoin Core, the traditional mm -hmm. Bitcoin? Is there any reason why miners will be doing, you know, could have other reasons for, for continuing to participate than sure. return? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're a large holder of Bitcoin, you can see your Bitcoin mining investment not just as a business, but as a safeguard of your already existing You're securing the value of, of your existing coins. Yeah, so in that sense, you could conceivably think about people mining even at losses if the alternative is that the network is grinding to a halt. So there was this uh, false narrative that was peddled this fall, um, again, called uh, you know, the mining debt spiral, which uh, is, is a funny narrative that presumes that if the price falls low enough, uh, miners will be unprofitable and will keep shutting off their gear, which will cause the price to fall further and you know, the whole network grinds to a halt. So, um, I really, so you don't agree with that? No, I ridiculed that narrative quite a lot because it's it's been powered before and we know it's wrong and uh, the incentive structure that exists within um, the protocol, you know, safeguards for that specifically by the difficulty. Um, so as people the leave the network, it becomes easier, easier yeah. to, to exactly. mine points. So, the, so people the, then come back in, it kind of self, it self balances. Correct. So the protocol is set up such that the one block, one new block is found on average every 10 minutes. Uh, if the hash power in the network at the same level of price doubles, the only thing that will happen is that it will become twice as hard for the current participants to find actual valid proofs. So. It's not like Bitcoin supply doubles or you know anything other than that happened. There's no change in the in in the sort of the ratios of who gets what. You know, if the hash rate doubles, the difficulty doubles, and everything stays the same. Uh, so the same thing happens if half of the Bitcoin miners fall off the network. Um, you know, the only thing that happens is that the the difficulty halves over right. time. Let's turn to the ecological impact of Bitcoin. This was in, in, in the mainstream press a lot as Bitcoin's mm -hmm. price hit its peak uh, just over a year ago. You know, what, what's, what would you say to the people who say that uh, this is consuming as much energy as a small to medium-sized country, mm -hmm. it's total waste of uh, energy, especially in an era of concerns about global warming? What do you think, you know, what do you think is the, what would you say in response to those arguments? Well, uh, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a free freedom-oriented person. Um, I don't think people's value judgments have anything valuable to do in economics. 
if you so it wouldn't matter if Bitcoin consumed as much energy as the US or China in future if it, if it were if people are willing to pay for it no I mean that that's that's the that's the that's liberty right there is a free market is the ability for all market participants to spend their money as they see fit and I personally reject all forms of uh, authoritarianism and you know socialism even the lighter versions all forms of like authoritarian dictates I reject personally um, on a philosophical level but I what mean, about the global warming argument it clearly this you know, this is an energy intensive activity it produces heat Sure, but I mean, that's not the problem of the network, that's the problem of how we produce electricity. Right, and so it's a matter, of, you're saying it's a matter of uh, preference amongst consumers, whether they, they spend their money or they, they consume electricity in this form or in another form, and they use, it for, use electricity for other purposes. Yeah, so I mean, we, we have issues right now in that externalities are not properly priced. So, you know, carbon like pollution of the commons uh, in terms of like polluting the oceans polluting the rivers polluting the atmosphere carries no cost directly at the moment for the polluters it just carries a very stretched out and delayed cost for literally everyone yeah so the way to do this is not by authoritarian dictate of assembling some sort of like energy police telling you what you can and cannot like spend your energy on I mean what are we gonna like what else are we gonna censor then like the Kardashians and you know computer games and frivolous like vacations when you're flying on jets you know we can't do it that way the the, the way to do this is to put a cost on the externalities and you know th this is one of the things that like a collective could do together we can sit down and say well actually we have to put a price on carbon pollution and to a certain extent like this is already happening like the carbon quota system is finally starting to bite uh the price of carbon was up massively last yeah. year uh, and if you look at what happened in the uk it drove coal underground and drove natural gas to the forefront which you know okay granted natural gas is still fossil fuel but it coal is four times worse yeah. so we are seeing huge increases in the way you know the way the incentive structures are set up so that we generate generate electricity in a non-polluting form and that is the problem not what we use the electricity for we use the electricity for things that are beneficial for humanity and to put authoritarian limits on what we can do with electricity is just not something that can, I... Can I ask you about a comment in, in your report? I think it's from Nick Carter, you're quoting him. Mm -hmm. He said that uh, Bitcoin mining or Bitcoin effectively liberates stranded electricity generation assets and makes new ones viable. Yeah. How does that work? So uh, this, this particularly uh, pertains to renewables who are much more so than fossil fuels who can be that's the beautiful thing about fossil fuels is you can ship them around like pretty easily and then you can uh, turn them into electricity on the spot where they're the most needed so that you don't suffer transmission losses which is why uh, fossil fuels are near industry centers and population centers uh, renewable sources of electricity generation don't have that luxury they have to be where the natural resources are. So they have to be where the wind blows or where there are powerful rivers in hilly districts or where the sun shines. So mostly 
you know, what, especially when we're talking about like Bitcoin, we're referring to hydro because it's the least intermittent of them, which makes it the best to use for miners. Yeah. Um, solar and wind are not ideal for miners, which is why they're used to such a limited extent. But so the best hydro plants are where the biggest rivers are. And so you mentioned the river Yenisei in, in Siberia. In, for example. Uh, Kutsk. So if you're saying that if you didn't use that uh, power for something like Bitcoin mining, you might have problems transmitting it over a five, yeah. you know, five, whatever, a thousand kilometers to the nearest uh, big population center. Exactly. And so what happens on the way is that as transmission losses increase, the, the final price increases to the point where it passes the, the fossil fuel power plants that are right on the borders of the industry centers and it's no longer competitive. So, you know, consumers... So what you're saying is we need to rethink our approach to Bitcoin's energy uh, consumption and yeah. the way it happens. So if Bitcoin becomes a viable long-term thing, uh, it can certainly serve as a way to bootstrap renewables, even if they are far away from population centers, uh, build them up to appropriate scale where actually connecting them to a grid makes economical sense. So. You know, to have an operational Bitcoin mine, you really only need like a dirt road and a, like a fiber optic cable. And it's a lot cheaper to build than like an ultra high voltage grid, which is a large infrastructure investment that, you know, people generally dislike and don't want in their backyard and, and these types of uh, problems. So especially for like new renewable sources where you want to put them where there is the most wind or the most sun or there there is like a river where you can use but it's so far away that right now it's like hard to justify the economics of building grid connections if bitcoin mining becomes a large-scale long-term industrial endeavor that we do as a civilization you can use it then to bootstrap these types of energy developments where when you first build the the power plant bitcoin miners can be your cornerstone type of clients and they will remain there so long as the power that you offer is cheap enough uh, that they can compete. And so Bitcoin miners are forced onto the cheapest amount of power at all given times uh, because of the knife type of competition that exists in this space. So, so in a way, we're creating the first truly global electricity market. In a sense, yeah, it, it is. It is you know, referred to sometimes as an electricity buyer of last resort. Uh, so long as you have, you know, you need certain geopolitical uh, standards, if you will, for any type of like large scale business to decide that they want to do anything uh, where you are. But if you have that in place, then yeah, you can pretty reliably then count on getting corner store clients that will pay, you know, at least a certain price for electricity. And that is quite cool. And for, you know, for the average uh, reader or listener who's interested in following the Bitcoin market, obviously the Bitcoin price is in all the, the news media and mm -hmm. on you know, many, many websites. But if people were looking at a little bit behind the scenes at what's going on in terms of mining activity, what are a, a couple of key statistics or trends that they should keep an eye on? Um, well, first of all, I would actually recommend our own outputs. Um, so, you know, take a look at uh, the blog posts that we post. If you go to uh, my own medium um, blog, you can find some interesting pieces on mining, uh, read our mining reports. Mining is quite, um, it's a bit of a murky industry. People keep their cards very close to their chest. Uh, there's a lot of 
really competitive business that do not like either attention or giving away anything. But looking at, I mean, looking at how so have people had a go at you for some things you've written? Have you had people irate miners ringing you up and saying, you know, you shouldn't have published this? Or? No, not not the miners because we we were very careful with our relationships there, and we, I mean, we're very strict about never revealing anything that they've told us in confidence because it ruins our sources. So we would never do that ever. Um, you know, the the only people that are honest for what we write are the people that disagree. So. But um, yeah, no, we're very careful with our minor relationships. It's a tough business to even get a foothold to get anyone to tell you anything. So you don't want to, you don't want to kick over the hornet's nest yeah. there. Well, Chris, thank you very much for a very interesting chat. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me, and um, I'll be back anytime. <laughs>